Our sermon this morning is, uh, you could theoretically look at it cross-eyed and say it is an expansion of a passage of Ephesians that we have already covered, but to be honest, it's really my yearly topical sermon. In the book of Ephesians, which we are traveling through, in chapter 2, we heard this good news. It's good news because it's been changed. God has done something and taken something out of the way. In Ephesians 2, verse 14 to 16, we read this. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one gone even to us long-nosed pig-eating Gentiles, and God is bringing men to himself from all types and conditions of men. But there had been a barrier to that in former times, and the barrier was the law of commandments in ordinances. And when we looked at that, we saw that the term ordinance is synonymous biblically with the term we use, sacrament. It is a religious ceremony, a, a, a symbolic practice. And Paul says there was a whole body of law of these that had really separated Gentiles from being able to come into God's covenants. We saw, ironically, that these ordinances were actually ordinances of the first covenant. They were signs and seals of God's covenant of works, but they were given visibly and knowledgeably to God's people at Sinai and in their wandering in the desert after that. And even though they were sacraments of the first covenant, they were practiced by those who were in covenant with God through the promise, the the Israelites, and they were not really known by the Gentiles, and if the Gentiles did know them, the Gentiles rejected them. And they were multiplicitous. There were a lot of them. The the people of God were given at Sinai and afterwards as they wandered in the desert all kinds of symbolic laws they were to follow. Washings and separation. Uh, times of purity concerning women having given birth. All of these laws were were uh, signs. They, they were, were messages from God. They were, were for his glory. But they really served as a barrier to the, the world seeing the promise of the seed of the woman who had crushed the serpent's head. Because the world had its own practices, And it didn't know these ordinances, and when it did see them, when they were presented to the world, the world did not want them. And so this was a huge barrier that kept Assyrians and Babylonians and Egyptians and Hittites, kept them away from the covenants of God. But now in Jesus Christ, these have all been taken out of the way. Well... There are two ordinances that we find in the Hebrew Scripture that were not given at Sinai or the wandering in the desert afterwards. And 
In several places in the Hebrew Scriptures, these ordinances are said to be everlasting ordinances, to last forever. These two ordinances are one, circumcision, and the other one is the Passover. Both of these are before Sinai, they're given in different contexts, and the scripture clearly says both of them shall be for my people ordinances forever. The separate yourself from the the people of God when you touch a dead body ordinance never says that will be forever. Um, How to deal with lepers. It never says this will be an everlasting ordinance. But circumcision and the Passover, both of them at various times, the biblical writers are given by the Holy Spirit to say, these will be ordinances for you forever. We encounter circumcision in chapter 17 of Genesis. God is speaking to Abram, and God tells him to um, have a sign for him and for his family. This sign will be for marking out who is visibly part of God's people. Genesis 17, 1 through 14. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless. And I will make a covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face and God talked with him saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also, I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abram, Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you, every male child among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male child in your generations. He who is born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant. He who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money must be circumcised, and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. There are a number of things about circumcision that we should note at this moment. First, it is said to be the covenant, although God's covenant, as we have been reading Genesis, 
is much larger. And even in this passage, God says, my covenant is I'll give you the promised land. But then when he talks about circumcision, he says, this is my covenant. What does such language mean? Well, it means that the covenant is summarized in the sign of circumcision. The the sign is not actually the covenant, but it stands for the covenant. And you can even use the term circumcision as a word for the covenant. And it is given to children, those who are eight days old. God is delineating who is going to be in his visible people. He marks out the children of believers. It is given to them. Now, it's given to males, but it is given at eight days old. And anyone who uh, does not have it is said to be cut off from your people. It's sort of a play on words, given what the sacrament actually is. But you can see by that that it is the sacrament of entrance into the covenant. Who are the people in the nation that God works with? It is those who are circumcised. It symbolizes the covenant. It's given to whole families. It begins with children. And everyone who has been a child, well, that's everyone. Uh, It marks out who is and who is not visibly in God's covenant. Now, is it a perfect symbol? Well, if we read further in Scripture, we'll find out the answer is no. Because we're going to read about people who will say, come, let us follow other gods. Gods our fathers have not known. And we are going to hear that they will be cut off from the people. We will hear that soothsayers and witches are to be cut off from the people. We will hear that those who heinously break God's law in in, in despicable ways, they are to be cut off from the people. But they are people who have been in the covenant, they have been circumcised, yet they are called to be cut off. So just because you are circumcised does not mean necessarily that you are in good standing with God and his people, but it is the sign of it. It is the sign of being brought into his covenant people. God at this moment is making for himself what we reform people call a visible church. This circumcision is going to mark out who is visibly in a covenantal standing with the Lord. Passover takes place centuries later. There we turn to Exodus chapter 12. And this is the scripture for its initiation. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the the tenth of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons. According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. 
Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep of or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. Then they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs, and they shall eat it. Do not eat it raw, nor boiled at all with water, but roasted in fire, its head with its legs and its entrails. You shall let none of it remain until morning, and what remains of it until morning you shall burn with fire. And thus you shall eat it with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. So you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. Against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. And the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So this day shall be to you a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation, and on the seventh day there shall be a holy convocation for you. No manner of work shall be done on them, but that which everyone must eat, that only may be prepared by you. So you shall observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread, for on this same day I will have brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as an everlasting ordinance. Are you noticing a pattern here? Everlasting ordinance. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month, at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven shall be found in your houses, since whoever eats what is leavened, that same person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a stranger or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwellings. You shall eat unleavened bread. So here we have another ordinance, which is said to be forever, and it is a meal and it is eaten as families. I hope you caught that at the beginning of that passage. It's a matter of household. There's going to be a lamb slain, and the lamb is central to this ordinance, and the lamb is to be eaten by the household. And if you have a very small household, it's okay for you to get with another household because we don't want any waste taking place, but it is a matter of the household. The, the men, the women, the children, the slaves, those who are at long-term visitation with you, this is going to be for the household together. And it's going to celebrate deliverance from Egypt. God is going to act. He has not acted yet, but he is going to act, and he is going to humble 
what is at this time the greatest military power on earth, and he is going to deliver his people from slavery from them. And so this, this, this sacrament is going to recall that. And as you eat it, you're going to eat it with a staff in hand, with sandals on, dressed, ready to go, because this is about deliverance. This is about God acting gloriously to save his people. It is the feast of the slain lamb. There's also going to be unleavened bread, and the, the week that it is connected to will even be called the feast of unleavened bread. But the central part of the sacrament is a slain lamb, and its blood is going to be painted on the, 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 the sides of the door and over top of the door. And this is going to be a symbolic call to remembrance, not for you, but for God. Because God is going to send the angel of death through Egypt, and all the firstborn are going to be killed, but you are going to paint this blood over your door, and it's going to be a sacrament appealing to God, pass over us in judgment. Let the blood of the Lamb cover us, so your wrath will not fall on us. It begins the year, and that is symbolically important. It seems to testify that your new life begins at this moment. It begins at the moment when God acts to rescue you from slavery, deliver you from his own wrath, and bring you into the land he has promised you. And again, this will be forever. When I was a, a very young man, uh, a child really, I'm talking sixth grade, seventh grade, uh, my best friend was a Jew. And not a particularly religious one. Among the Jews today, there are a number of sects that kind of correspond to our denominations. And my friend was an attendee at what's called a Reform Synagogue. Now, Reform Judaism has nothing to do with Reformed Christianity. Reformed Christianity is an attempt to return to the Bible. Reform Judaism, first of all, is a Christian, and second of all, it's an attempt to get as far away from the Bible as you can possibly get, to be honest. Most of them claim to be atheists, but they're Jews. And Peter and I, we would, as young men, debate religion all the time. And it was really very fascinating to hear his religion and their approach to religion, seeing that most of the people around Peter weren't even theists. Well, when Peter turned 12, I was invited to his bar mitzvah, but before that, I was invited to his family's home for Passover. Now, again, Peter's parents probably aren't even theists, but that night, we were Jews in Egypt. That night, everything was done according to the traditions and the father of the household put forward the, the elements of the Passover, and he said the ancient words, and Peter responded as the firstborn son would respond, 
And there was no mocking, no sense of this is old fashioned and we don't know why we do this. There was a, uh, a real feeling in the room that something very, very sacred was happening. Now, come tomorrow, there wouldn't be anything sacred to be had. Come tomorrow, there would be the agnosticism that I was used to. But for some reason that night, that ceremony really spoke to these hardened people in a way that I never saw them spoken to otherwise. The Passover seemed to have a power to it that could not be denied. When God gives ordinances, that's what they do. It is a message from God. God is present at the ordinance. And that night, we were Jews in Egypt. That night, we were delivered by a God who was very real. It is of no uh, coincidence that in the Christian church, the people who belong to God through Jesus Christ, these two ordinances remain. You may not realize that you practice circumcision. You may not realize that you practice the Passover, but you in fact do. Both of these things are said to be eternal and to belong to the people of God. You are the people of God. You do practice these things, but you call them something different. When you go to the New Testament, you find circumcision for believers, but it's called baptism. When Paul writes to the church at Colossians, Colossae, in chapter 2 of Colossians, uh, this is what he has to say in verse 11 and 12. In him, and the reference is to Jesus, in him you were also circumcised. So if you're in Jesus Christ, you're circumcised. In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by the putting off of the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of, of Christ. Now, how is it that you appertain the circumcision? Well, it's twofold. One, you are buried with him in baptism in which you also were raised with him through faith, that's part two, in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So congratulations, you are a circumcised person. And that would include everyone in Christ. We'll get to the significance of that in a second. But circumcision remains amongst God's people. Everyone who is baptized, they are circumcised. The Lord's Supper remains. The words of institution are said here every Lord's Day, but... The, the original Lord's Supper and the words of institution come out of a Passover. Turning to the Gospel of Luke and chapter 22 and starting with verse 14, we read, When the hour had come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him. Then he said to them, With fervent desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So, he is definitely sitting at a Passover meal. He is sitting there with his disciples with fervent desire. I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. 
For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So I'm not going to eat of it until what it symbolizes has been taken. And then after that happens, I will eat of it again, but not until. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves, for I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took of the bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. But behold, well, it goes on. Those are the words of institution. Jesus is at Passover. He institutes the Lord's Supper in the Passover. He makes it different, but it's the same. I have wanted to eat this Passover with you. I won't eat this Passover again until we do so in the kingdom of God. The wine of this Passover I won't drink again until I do it in the kingdom of God. So there are differences, and yet it is circumcision and Passover. Now, why is that? Well, it's because our religion is a covenant. It is because covenants, are, in this case, are between a greater and a lesser. And guess who you are? You're not the greater in the covenant. You're the lesser. God is the king. He is making a covenant with you. And when covenants are made between greaters and lessers, the greater can alter the covenant, but only in certain ways. He can alter it to make it more gracious. And at this point, I usually ask you, are you employed? Do you make a paycheck? Did your employer say, we'll pay you this much? And then I ask you, if he says, now I'm changing the deal and I'm going to pay you more, will you get upset? And the answer is, of course, no. And this symbolizes the concept I'm not talking about. In a covenant, the greater can make things more gracious. And when that happens, the ceremonies, the symbols of the covenant, which stand for the covenant and testify to the covenant, are altered as well to speak to the change in the covenant. So has the covenant of God with his people changed from the time when Moses instituted the Passover or when Abraham was given circumcision? The answer is absolutely yes. All the promises of God have been fulfilled in the coming life, teachings, death, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ that does make the covenant of God as gracious as it ever will be. God has paid the price for our sins. He, he, has, he has raised his son from the dead. He has given the Lord Jesus Christ to be king forever on David's throne. You better believe the covenant has been changed, and it is much more gracious. But it is the same covenant made more gracious. And circumcision and Passover are forever, but they are altered to reflect the graciousness of God in Jesus Christ. 
what changes can we note? Well, to begin with, we can note that if you are a woman and you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are in Christ, right? I mean, that's said of you, right? Well, in the earlier form of circumcision, circumcision was denied to you. There are a number of things in the the Hebrew scriptures that point to the fact that the fall of mankind started with Eve. Uh, If if you are unclean and you're a woman, you're unclean doubly long than you are a man. And if you are uh, a daughter of the covenant, you still don't get the symbol. But there has been a change. Are you a woman? and you are baptized, you are a circumcised believer. And you should be very gracious that it happens this way than it does the old way. The sign has been extended to all God's people because God has made the world right. Um, Through Eve came the fall, through Mary came the son. The world is now in balance, and women are now given the sign. Uh, Cutting is no longer used. It has become washing. In cutting, there is violence and blood and pain, all of which certainly testifies to what God is going to have to do in the covenant to redeem our souls. But in washing, there is a a gentle reclamation. There is the washing away of sin, removing of filth. You don't get cut now, you get washed. The name of the triune God is used. In the time of Moses, if you had told him, I'm a follower of Jesus of Nazareth, he would have said, who? But if you had told him, I'm a follower of the seed of the woman who will crush the serpent's head, he would say, oh, yes, that is the great promise. But what is this name you use? Well, God has been amazingly gracious to us. He has made himself known. He has told us who he is. He is Father. He is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son. He is the Holy Spirit. He has become much more intimate with us, and at the time of this circumcision for us, his name is spoken to us. This is also said to be the name of Christ. And in churches, that sometimes becomes a controversy, because some churches baptize in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, some the name of Jesus. The name of Jesus is the triune name. He is God completely, as well as being one of the persons of the Trinity. All the fullness of the Godhead dwells in him. His name is the name we use. We know him in Christ. Um... The bread and the wine are used for remembering him in the Passover. It is not blood, although the words are still the same. When the blood was painted on the door, it was to cause God to remember his covenant. Now the blood has been shed. There is no more blood for God's people to be splashing about because the sacred blood of salvation has been poured out. But there is still a sign that we lift 
that we do in remembrance of him. Now, throughout Protestantism, there has been something of a theological mistake made that has been really quite tragic. When Paul says we do the, that, that, that Christ said to do this in remembrance of me, when the gospel writers say that's what Christ said, we have taken that as, oh, isn't that nice? We're, we're going to partake of this meal and we're going to remember Jesus. Well, that's not covenantally what's being said. When this is done in remembrance of him, you're not the one who needs to be remembering. Because actually, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, you should be remembering him 24-7. But this is a sacramental act, an ordinance, and you are partaking of bread and wine as a sign to God symbolically We are seated at your table. We belong to you. See that we partake of the bread and wine and pass over us from your wrath. Because this is Passover. God is wrathful with the wicked every day. There is a judgment day coming. And the psalmist says, oh, Lord, don't drag me away with the wicked when that comes. Let me be in a different group. Well, this is a sacramental sign to God. We're the different group. Jesus has died for us. Behold his body. Jesus has died for us. Behold his blood. Remember, O Lord, your people, and do not enter into wrath with them. But it is bread and wine now, not the blood itself. And um, it's bread and wine alone. If you were listening carefully, as I read about the Passover, you had the lamb with its blood, and you had the bread and the wine, you also had bitter herbs. You know why they're called bitter? Because they are. They taste awful. But they are served at Passover, and it leaves in your mouth a bitter taste. You didn't really like eating that. Well, there is a bitterness when the Lord Jesus Christ has not yet been crucified and raised. There is a pain to be felt, and he himself is going to feel pain. He is going to receive all the bitterness of all the elect throughout all time, and so at Passover, you're partaking of bitter herbs. But guess what? The covenant has been changed. The cross has happened. The tomb is empty. Christ is in heaven. Why would we now partake of bitterness? Joy and graciousness has been poured out as much as it ever will be, the bitter herbs are gone. That is a change. And he is eating it with us. Many Christians have taken a statement that I won't eat of this Passover again until the kingdom of God has. I won't eat of it until the end of time. But sacraments pass away when you have the fullness of their essence. At judgment day, we're not going to be seated at Passover. Because we're going to be seated at the wedding of the Lamb. We're going to be actually dining with God. We don't need the type and shadow. So when Christ eats it again, it's still in this life, and it's when we gather. The Lord Christ spiritually joins with us at the table. He partakes as he invites us to his table. It is a joyful occasion, and spiritually, we are actually communing with the person of Jesus Christ. 
What changes, though, do we not see? Well, in baptism, we do see a change that both sexes receive it, but there is nowhere in Scripture where God says, now, I'm changing this ordinance so that somebody totally different as far as age will receive it. Search the New Testament as far as you will. You will find no place where God says, now, um, you know, we're going to make it less gracious because up till now, your children have been part of the visible covenant. We're not having that anymore. You know how Paul talks about in chapter 9 of Romans, how growing up in Israel, he partook of the covenants and the ordinances and the readings. He had all the blessings of God through the outer covenant. We're not doing that anymore. We're going to be lots less gracious and we're going to wait for your kids to become 14, and then we're going to bring them in. Doesn't say that anywhere. There is no change as who receives the supper either. If you were listening carefully when the institution of the Passover was, was given, the Passover is not given to individuals. It is eaten by families as families, and that includes children. And on the night that our Lord was betrayed, he did not say, now, you know, the bread and the wine, this is my body and blood, but get your kids out of here. We're not letting them at this table. In fact, we know the spirit of our Lord was totally different. When his disciples said, you know, get these kids out of here, they don't count. Jesus said, let the little children come unto me. And at the Lord's Supper, at the inauguration of the table, he does not take the table from the children of believers. But they are the children of believers. And guess what other ordinance they have received? The children of believers are circumcised, right? Now, it's not a perfect sign. You can have an unbeliever who has been circumcised. But it is the sign of being part of the kingdom of God it is the ordinance, the sacrament of entrance, and we're eating the Passover, we're eating as a family of God, but we've all received the sign of entrance. That's why we can sit at this table as a family, because we're a family in God, and our circumcision shows that. That hasn't been changed either. The table is for believers. It was in the Old Testament. It is in the New Testament. God has never made a change in Scripture saying that's different. And he has said of both of these ordinances, they will last forever. They are the ordinances that are not connected to Sinai. They are not connected to the first covenant. They are connected to the second covenant. They are connected to the covenant of Abraham, and they will be with those who are in Abraham's covenant forever, and they are intimately connected. The table is for all who are visibly in God's church. But how do you end up visibly in God's church? You enter it by baptism. You may be wondering why I am, I am hammering this home. Well, 
you're a, a typical American family and you're church shopping. And one of the things that is in the back of your mind as you look at various congregations is you go, you know, churches do the, the sacraments very differently. They all have different little twists. And, um, you know, we got to kind of figure out how they do things so we can fit in here. And that's about as deep as it gets. Uh, we're Americans and we're used to variety. We're used to having different things we can shop from. But in Scripture, you are Israel. Scholars uh, marvel at the book of James. The, the book of James has an amazing introduction. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's obviously a Christian statement. My name is James, and I'm a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So no modern Jews will say that. that that's a Christian statement. And I am writing to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. The 12 tribes who are scattered abroad. The word for scattered is diaspora. And it means those whom God has scattered throughout the world. And James says, I'm writing to Israel as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's very definitely a New Testament book. Well, that only works if you're the 12 tribes. The Apostle Peter, in chapter 1 and verse 1 and 2, introduces his book this way. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, so again, very definitely a New Testament book, to the pilgrims of the dispersion, the diaspora, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So he uses a term for Israel, the diaspora, and he applies it to us, who are Israel scattered through the world. This theme seems in the apostles' mind to be very settled. Israel, the visible covenant of God, has always been the people who relate to God through the promise of the seed of the woman who will crush the serpent's head. Those who call themselves Israel today don't relate to God through the, the seed of the woman who will crush the serpent's head. They have rejected him. They have stood apart from his people. They have delineated themselves as something different because they reject Jesus of Nazareth. Is what is called Israel today Israel then? The answer is no. It is something other than the Israel of God. A few other scriptures. Uh, for the first one, I have to turn to the I have to turn to the the King James version. This is Acts chapter seven and verse thirty eight. In in most translations, this is a little obscured, but the King James actually gets it literally. This is he that was in the church in the wilderness, which the with the angel which spake to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, who received the lively oracles to give unto us. Now, Stephen is talking about the, the Israelites in the wilderness, and when he talks about them in the King James Version, it's translated the church in the wilderness. Why do, do, do they do that? Well, it's because in the original language, the word is ecclesia, which literally means church, because that's the word used for church, 
all across the New Testament. Why would Stephen use that term? Well, because in the Greek Old Testament, the first translation of the Hebrew, the translation that went out into all the world, wherever Israel was called the assembly of God, the word ekklesia was used. So if you're reading the Old Testament from the Septuagint, you have heard hundreds of times, you are the church of God in the wilderness. And that's the language that Stephen uses. Who is Israel? You are Israel. Who owns circumcision? You do. It was given to you from God. Who owns the Passover? You do. It is given to you as a sign to state to the principalities and powers, to state to God, to state to your own heart, Jesus Christ has put me in fellowship with you. And as we heard in the Old Testament lesson this morning, God is kind of a stickler for details. If you look in the ark, you die. And that's kind of harsh, but that's what happened. And so the reason I'm giving this fairly topical sermon is because Session has asked me to do so because we have very specific ways we do things here. Now, we're not exactly what you'd call amazingly systematic, and some things get kind of sloppy, but there are ways we do things, and we take very seriously the connection between these two eternal ordinances. You bring your children to the Lord's Supper if you choose to. The reason we allow you to do that is because it's the Passover. But who can come to the Passover? Can an uncircumcised Philistine? Can a uncircumcised Amorite or Moabite? Well, no. The table is for those who belong to the Lord, and the sign of belonging is baptism. And so... We reserve the table for those who are in right standing with God's church. And a major part of that right standing is you've received the sign, you're part of it. It's not the reality, it's a sign of the reality, but the sign is important. I guarantee you, you will feel the sign is important if you go out to some social event and while your wife is separated from you, for some reason she slides her wedding ring off while she's talking with men. Do you think the sign will be important to you at that point? There is an importance to the sign. So this is why we do what we do. You are Israel. You are God's people. The table belongs to you, but it belongs to the baptized. It belongs to those who are in good standing with God's people because Jesus will actually spiritually meet with us at this table today. He will not be bread and wine. He, the, the, the body and blood is a symbol. But spiritually, he will be here. And who is invited to his table is a significant question. 